0: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument, with words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy.
1: I'm Kathy Weiss, and this is Radical Philosophy on Three CR Community Radio. I hate society's
0: notion that there's something wrong with sex and any woman who loves sex. Alexandra Torre. Good afternoon, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today on the program, we're speaking to Dr. Vanessa Skouten about sexual consent in residential care facilities. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks, Chris. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about
1: yourself? Sure. So I'm a lecturer in philosophy at Massey University in Albany, in Auckland on the North Shore. And my areas of interest are normative and applied ethics, in particular the ethics of sex and sexuality. At the moment, I'm actually involved in an inter- interdisciplinary project, and we've just published an article on ethics intimacy and sexuality and aged care in the Journal of Advanced Nursing. And what this article was, it was a series of interviews and surveys that we did with staff and residents and carers about what they thought about ethics in the context of sex in a residential care setting. So we asked, looked at how they made their decisions, what ethical considerations they, t- they took into account, those sorts of things.
0: So what was it that inspired your interest in sexual consent in residential care facilities?
1: See, it's a bit of a funny coincidence. So when I started at i just completed my PhD, and that was on the role that consent plays in ethics of sex. And my dissertation argued that there are cases in which just looking at whether or not someone consents is sometimes not very useful when it comes to a moral evaluation, So this is pretty controversial, but it seems to me that there are some cases involving people who either can't or at least can't obviously consent, where there's not necessarily a moral problem with any sexual activity. And in particular I'm thinking of cases involving people in loving relationships, especially of long duration, when one or both of the parties have some kind of cognitive impairment like dementia or something like that. And... I think in cases like that, it seems cruel to say that people in that position shouldn't be engaging in any kind of sexual or intimate activity just on the grounds that one of them can't consent. And it wasn't just about necessarily older people with dementia, it was also about perhaps younger people with cognitive disabilities. And that those people should have the right to fulfilling and loving romantic relationships as well, if that's what they desire. And it seems like focusing solely on consent might roll a lot of those relationships out. I think it's a real problem. So I got my PhD in philosophy, which is obviously all about the theoretical issues. And then when I started to work at Nessie, I discovered that I had some colleagues, Mark Henriksen in social work and Catherine Cook and nursing, and they were already working on a sort of related project. They'd already been involved in talking to and interviewing residents of residential care facilities and staff members and family members about their attitudes to sex and intimacy. I thought this was really interesting because I think philosophy can get some really useful insights from people who actually have to make these sorts of decisions on an everyday basis. So we theorize that they're actually you know, engaged in making these decisions. So I talked to Mark and I was lucky enough to be asked to be involved in the project.
0: Could you tell us what your definition of sexuality is?
1: Yeah, so it's actually quite tricky. And for the purposes of our projects, we're defining it pretty broadly. So it might include all kinds of sexual activity, masturbation, con- consumption of pornography, right through the sexual intercourse, maybe even something as simple as holding hands. Right, So we can see with, Intimacy and intimate touch, as well as behaviours that are really sexual. And this is because intimate touch can be hugely important to people, but it's also a really important way to express a person's sexuality. And holding hands needn't be an expression of sexuality, like you might hold hands with a kid when you're crossing the road, but it can be uh, if it's an expression of your relationship with someone. So we're interested in sexuality really broadly speaking.
0: What is the general attitude of the staff in residential care facilities towards sexual relationships between residents?
1: Actually, uh, it's really mixed. It's quite quite interesting. Some of the staff thought that any kind of sexual relationship at all was just completely inappropriate and that sort of setting. Some people believe that it's part of the role of the carers to look out for a resident's overall well-being. and. That means helping people live fulfilling lives with sex and sexuality being part of it. So that means access to escorts, masturbation, forming new sexual relationships. So it really varies. Hmm.
0: Could you describe some of the complex scenarios that occur within residential care facilities?
1: Yes, I think most of the really complicated cases have to do with two factors. So, especially if the relationship's new, that can be really complicated. So, in some cases you might have a resident who's been in a heterosexual relationship all their life, and they may form a same-sex relationship, and that can be difficult for the family, especially if the person's still married or still has a spouse outside of the care facility. And so that can be complicated. Something else that sometimes causes problems is when there's a conflict with the resident's family members, so sometimes married residents or new relationships with a person who's not their spouse. And that obviously can be pretty upsetting for the spouse and the children. And one complication of all of this is that sometimes it's the adult children who have enduring power of attorney and they might need to be consulted. But obviously adult children aren't often you know, the best people to be making decisions about their parents' sexual lives particularly if it's a new relationship. And I'd be happy, you know, helping my parents with their financial fears if they needed me to. I wouldn't really be that happy about helping them with their sexuality or sexual if That was an issue. So, yeah, I think most people would probably feel the same way about their parents.
0: Yeah, it can be, can be quite a, a difficult issue for children. I suppose there's, there almost yeah. needs to be an independent sort of guardian appointed, doesn't there?
1: Yeah, and it's, I was thinking it'd be the big solution. You'd want to appoint someone who's got power of attorney over your decision-making with regards to sex and sexuality or something like that. It's difficult to see, I guess, how, how it would work. It could be knew you well, how you clearly hit your interests at heart. But it seems unusual that every other area you we know, leave this to children or family members, but there really might not be the best people to decide in this domain.
0: Is there any sort of legislations in the care facilities?
1: Uh, so, I'm not, I think nothing in particular, so obviously in care facilities there's a duty of care towards the residents, so you would look after their general health and wellbeing. You know, obviously all of the usual laws about sexual assault and harassment and things like that apply, but there's nothing, there's no particular laws that relate particularly to residential care facilities. But I think one pretty complicated legal issue is that obviously, according to the laws, It's not legal to have sex with someone, if they don't or can't consent, and you're aware of that, or you should have been aware of that. But it's often really not clear whether a patient with dementia can consent to sexual activity or not. And a lot of the tools that people use to assess competency aren't really fit the purpose, so they're often general cognitive ability tools rather than tools that relate particularly to people's understanding of sexuality. So... Sometimes this means that facilities can be really risk averse. like, so obviously the safe option is just to prevent any kind of sexual intimacy, but it's not clear that that's what's best for the residents.
0: Could you explain about the case of the 78-year-old uh, yeah. man from Iowa?
1: Yeah. so this is a really interesting case. This is a case involving a man called Henry Ravens, and he's from a state legislator from Iowa, and in 2014, he got charged with third-degree felony sexual abuse. So the situation was this. He was married to a woman named Donna, and she was a resident of the Concord Care Centre, so that's a residential care facility in, in Iowa. And she's also 78, and she had pre-examined outfathers. So for both of them, they were on their second marriage. Both of them had been widowed. And at the time that Henry was charged or well, well, like shortly before, they'd been married for seven years. And so both of them had children from their previous marriages and there'd already been a bit of tension between Henry and Donna's children. And they disagreed about things like whether it was a good idea for Henry to take his wife on outings. So the daughters thought that they sort of educated and upset their mother and Henry thought that the reason Donna was upset was because she couldn't be with him as much as she wanted to. So, therefore, one, one of the daughters had actually raised concerns with a social worker and with the facility that Henry was engaging in inappropriate sexual contact with their mother. So, in consultation with their daughters, who actually had power of attorney, the care team put in place a new care plan. And this care plan limited her outings with Henry, and this is the crucial point. They determined that Donna wasn't able to consent to sexual activity. And they did this based on her results in a standardized cognitive test. And this test was used for Medicaid and Medicare purposes. So it's a a standard test, it's not particularly related to sexual consent. but So they determined this thing that Donna was not able to consent to sexual activity. And they advised Henry on. A week later, a Donna was moved from a private room into a double, and then that evening her roommate reported that Henry came in, drew the curtain around his wife's bed, and that she heard sexual noises. So Donna's daughters were informed of this, and then the police got called, and an investigation began. Donna's, one of Donna's daughters successfully petitioned for guardianship of her mother, and from then on, Henry's visits to Donna were really limited. She died in August, and then three days later, or actually three days after the funeral, Henry was a research. So I think what's really interesting about this case is that it basically covers all of the really interesting issues about this. So the first, it's not clear whether Donna could consent. So according to the doctors, she couldn't. But they were relying on standardized cognitive tests. And the thing is about capacity to consent is this might vary across the domains. So someone might be able to consent to a medical treatment but not be able to manage their own finances. And also, particularly with something like dementia, capacity to consent can vary from moment to moment. So a dementia patient might be lucid in the morning but not in the evening. The other interesting question is that it's not clear that anyone was thinking much about what was best for Donna, right? And she seemed pretty upset when she was unable to spend time with Henry. There was no indication that she was unhappy with any of her interactions. And in fact, intimacy can often be good for people with dementia. And the other complicating factor is, of course, whose role was it to decide what's best for Donna? So there's obviously a lot of conflict in this case between Henry and Donna's daughters. But it's really not clear that the children of a dementia patient are best placed to decide what is in that patient's interests when it comes to sex. And this is particularly true, I think, in cases involving a second marriage. So this case sort of neatly contains a lot of the really interesting issues in this area.
0: Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a lot of grey areas. You're listening to yeah. Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Dr Vanessa Scouten about sexual consent in residential care homes. What are some of the other ethical issues and principles? So we
1: looked at actually some documents. That key facilities are using to give them to, to give guidance to staff members about this, and I think most of the ethical issues and principles that came up at the, will be pretty familiar. So, rights: like one, what rights do people have with regards to their own choices? What rights do people have in terms of their rights to, you know, to access something? that improves their well-being, so what rights do people have to decide to engage in sexual activity as well as rights not to be interfered with. Dignity is another really good point, so to what extent is someone's dignity compromised, especially if they've got lack of privacy to, to experience their sexuality, especially around things like masturbation, pornography. Well-being, I think, is pretty fundamental as well. I think it's ignored the extent to which something like access to a relationship or intimate touch or things like that can really improve people's well-being. And if we focus, I think, too much on just rights, like whether people's rights are being violated, whether they can consent, those kinds of things. Well-being ends up, end up falling by the way. So then obviously there's the fact that in a residential care facility it's complicated by the fact that there are staff members and carers who've got a duty of care towards the people in that facility, so there's sort of an intermediary when it comes to these decisions that's not usually in place in everyday life. Right? Other people don't usually get to make decisions about the sexualised animals because they're not needed to. But in cases like these, there are people whose obligation it is to make sure that the people under their care are okay and doing well and all of those kinds of things.
0: And what are the ethical approaches and interventions?
1: So I think this is actually pretty complicated. So... One approach, and it's a pretty common one, is to develop policy documents for use in residential facilities. So not not a lot of places have things but some of them do, and it's becoming sort of more of an expectation that there'll be some kind of policy around this. And we actually analysed a bunch of these, and most of them really heavily emphasised rights. So the right to sexual expression, the right to consent, those kinds of things. dignity and well-being were also sanctioned. Some relied pretty heavily on Benjamin and children's four principles, so autonomy, beneficence, non-existence and justice. Uh, But obviously these are policy documents that are aimed at philosophers, but at staff members. And I think one issue is that it's really quite difficult to develop really prescriptive policies around these things, and it's not clear that that's a good idea. So in cases like these, the staff are the people who really know the patient's best and I think they need to take that into account. So obviously it's going to be the case sometimes that a strict list of rules is not going to cover all of the features of the situation that matters and so it might be the case that a staff member is going to have to rely on their own judgment. So one thing we're thinking about with this study is this question. What kind of ethical guidance is going to be useful to the people who are having to make these decisions on an everyday basis? we've so got two So what what would a good policy document look like? And what kind of education is going to be a good supplement to a policy document? So one of the documents we looked at had a whole bunch of case studies for discussion, and I think it's an example of something that might be a really useful way of helping staff to think through these issues. But I think in a lot of these situations, what the right thing to do is, is going to be a judgment call that just has to be made by the carers who know the residents' well. And the role of any kind of ethical intervention is to help the care workers to think through the kinds of ethical considerations that might be important, why they might be important, and so they're more com- so they're more comfortable in making these kinds of decisions. Yeah, you
0: just mentioned it before, but could you tell us a bit more about the pilot study that was done?
1: Yep, sure. So basically what we did is we administered some surveys, These were surveys designed to assess people's knowledge and attitudes and behaviours towards sexuality in a key facility setting. And we also did close interviews with some residents and family members and staff.
0: And what were the conclusions of the pilot study?
1: So I think probably the main conclusion is that through the professional education would be really useful. So just over half of participants were confident in their knowledge of these facilities policies, but only half were confident in their communication skills to work through these issues. And about two-thirds wanted through the professional education But I think the other thing the study highlighted is that there are quite a few contradictions. So most people thought that people over 65 were still interested in sex and that residents should be able to have casual sexual relationships. Married couples had the right to be sexual. But um, more than three quarters stated that if a resident demonstrated non-threatening sexual behaviour in public, they would report it. So it seems like on the one hand there's an understanding that people should be able to sanction. On the other hand, they're all worried that this is the kind of thing that needs to be reported. Three quarters of the participants felt that they were confident in their ability to make ethical decisions, but only a third of them agreed that it was easy to tell whether a patient with dementia can sense to sexual behaviour just by looking at their behaviour. So I think that basically I go it's pretty messy. So <laughs> but some of the some of the things that came out of the corridor data were I think really interesting too. So I think the main one is that the physical space of a care facility can make forming or even maintaining relationships really difficult. So often couples might be separated, especially if one of them requires hospital level care. A lot of the mm-hmm. rooms only have single beds or there's shared rooms. Even if there is space available, there's often a lack of privacy, so you might have care workers coming in and out all of the time. Another thing is that it's not just about sex and sexuality. It's also about relationships and people's feelings about their relationships as well. So it can often be really difficult for spouses of residents to know what their role is. So especially if you've been someone's carer for a long time, sometimes when the spouse goes into the care facility, then you've got to sort of relearn how to be their spouse rather than their carer. And it can also be really difficult for a spouse to watch their partner form new relationships within the care facility, relationships with people that aren't in. So there's a lot of difficult issues and a lot of difficult things for people around this issue. I
0: suppose there's the attitudes of the people running the care facilities as well. And if they're homophobic, that's liable to affect the yeah. residents as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so most of the care workers we spoke to thought that same-sex couples had the right to be intimate, just like everyone else. But from a lot of the interviews we did, so one of the things coming out was that there's, quite a bit of anxiety around same-sex relationships in aged care facilities. So I heard it described as people going back into the closet when they move into a care facility because they're not sure how the other residents will react, how the carers will react. So that can be really difficult for people too.
0: Are there very many reports of inappropriate sexual activity between residents in aged care facilities?
1: Yeah, so there are quite a few. So... One problem is of course that what counted as inappropriate and why can really vary. So so I think I think one respondent thought that, that it was not appropriate to have any, have any kind of sexual relationship at all in a key facility. That even if there was a private space and that was because if they said it was embarrassing to some people. Uh two of our participants described an incidents involving Male residents either groping or attempting to touch other residents and entering the room of female residents. And in both cases, both in both of those cases, the male resident was then moved to a different facility. But this can often be really difficult to deal with. So, wanted to ask, we spoke to, to just the difficulty in dealing with these situations in a way which respects the dignity of both of the residents, or all of the residents involved. So she said in particular that some male residents with dementia are sometimes treated pretty abruptly, so they get treated as little bullies or bad men rather than recognised as people who themselves have cognitive impairment right, and they need help and support rather than being disciplined in this way. But obviously we have got to take into account the safety and the wellbeing of everyone else in the facility as well, so it's a difficult balance.
0: Yeah, it is. Is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't already covered?
1: Yes, I think one particularly interesting issue is to do with sex workers. that's it's actually surprising the extent to which this is an issue in care facilities. Like right? obviously in some ways a care facility is like a home. And you know, people should be able to do things for the legal within the company of their own home. So not just like in Australia but in New Zealand Prostitution is legal, so it's regulated, so there's no issue, there's no issue with the legality of that. And sometimes people want, want to access these services. So, it's actually quite a nice story. So, there's a, a manager actually describing a resident who, before he passed away, his last wish was to see a woman's naked body. And I tried to organise that for him, but the problem is, is that. When they, when they tried to do that, they had to go through the paperwork, they had to talk to the person with enduring power of attorney, and that person needed to consult all of the family members to see if they agreed that they wanted to pay for the, for the sex workers to come in. And so, basically, it became really complicated, and the resident passed away before they managed to sort about out. which the respondent described as a shame. Yeah. But, and I think this is something that needs to be more discussion about more discussion about how to manage
0: do you have any future study plans within this field Uh,
1: so we're involved in a mastering project at the moment so we've done the the studies i've been talking about have been pilot studies and what we're doing is we're renting out the project so we're involving a lot more facilities so another thing i'm interested in is the surveys that we've got coming up in which we're really trying to drill down into what people's attitudes are, how they understand consent, the extent to which they believe that's important. So that's the direction that this project is taking at the moment.
0: Oh, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Oh, thanks, please.
0: And I've been speaking to Dr Vanessa Scouten about sexual consent in residential care facilities. Oh. hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.